Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. It's time to leave me be. Sidestep, you're too blind to see it's all wrong. To leave me be. Can't you see I don't need another mouth to feed? I can hardly handle rolling up my own dress sleeve. I know I have read about your kind somewhere. Listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of Go Back Home, a song by Hebdo. Hebdo is our featured Ohio musical artist tonight, so stick around to the end of the podcast. We'll tell you a little bit more about him, how to find the music, and let you hear the entire song. But right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. co-host Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi everyone, Steve, tonight's story is taking us back to September of 1962, and fall classes have resumed at Columbus area schools, including the Ohio State University and the Columbus Business School located downtown. Gary Antko, a business school student, he was new to town. He was still in the process of moving into a house with a couple of friends on Woodruff Avenue near the Ohio State campus. And as midnight approached, one of his roommates recalled he'd forgotten to roll up the windows in his Buick, which was parked behind the house in an alley. Gary offered to take care of it since his buddy was already dressed for bed. And so he stepped out of the house and cut across the backyard. Adjacent to the alley was a six-car garage, and as Gary walked past it, the moonlight reflected off a pale bundle on the floor. He'd seen the inside of the garage earlier, but this item was new. So out of curiosity, he moved in for a closer look. That's when he realized that what he thought might have been two bags of cement were actually a pair of human legs. Gary drove to a diner to reach a phone to call police, and they arrived to discover a young woman who had been shot three times in the face. Her purse contents lay scattered on the garage floor, so her identity was no mystery. She was 19-year-old Mary Margaret Andrews. Friends and family called her Peggy. And like the man who had found her, she was a student at the downtown business college. A few years ago, Columbus Monthly did a thorough feature on the Peggy Andrews case, interviewing detectives, friends, and family. Much of my story comes from their research. 
Peggy was born in Wintersville, a small town a few miles from Steubenville. She and her brother Patrick were born to Alex and Mary Andrews. As a matter of fact, Patrick still lives in the house where the two were raised. Patrick said his sister was generous and friendly, often adopting new classmates into her circle of friends. The Andrews house was often the place where the kids gathered on weekend nights. Sometimes they still talk about the neighborhood hayride held for Peggy's 16th birthday. Peggy went to Steubenville Catholic Central High School, where she developed a deep love for her faith. She attended Mass every morning and often included prayers and letters to her friends. She once considered becoming a nun. And I went to Catholic school, and I thought about becoming a nun. Yeah. I think it's uh, kind of a rite of passage if you go. Right. My mom, my mom would say the same thing. She went to the same school you did. So. She did. <laughs> but after graduating in 1961, Peggy, a very bright student, decided to study business and perhaps become an accountant or an auditor. And that's how she ended up in Columbus, with her parents' blessing. My parents felt that she should sample the world to see what life was really like, Patrick told reporter Michelle Sullivan. Peggy settled into a boarding house on 18th Avenue and shared a room with two other women. Actually, there were two house mothers in that house looking after more than a dozen co-eds living there. Now, house mothers, what, what is that exactly? Is that just... You know, back in the 60s, I mean, things had to be very proper. So they were two women who lived there full time, earned a salary for being there, and just looked after these girls that were still teenagers. You know, they were going to college, but they were still 18, 19, uh, setting curfews and and making rules and keeping them safe. Do they have house fathers for the... That's a good question. I wonder. I wonder if there were uh, boarding houses for men with house fathers. Maybe. I kind of think there was in the 60s, early 60s. Now, Peggy, she attended classes at the Columbus Business School two nights a week, and she worked full-time as an accountant's secretary during the day. And on Thursday, September 20, Peggy finished her job and headed to her 5 p.m. class. Afterward, she stepped outside with her roommates Carol Maxwell and Carol Ike, and a couple of male classmates. Now, normally, the three women would share a bus ride home, but Peggy had been battling a cold and wasn't feeling well. So one of those male classmates, Ron Naget, offered to drive her home so she could skip the long, uncomfortable commute on a crowded bus. Carol Ike asked Peggy to spare her from dragging around a department store shopping bag that she had been carrying. So Peggy took the navy blue bag filled with a new dress and sweaters, and Peggy and Ron pulled away just after 9 p.m. Ron drove Peggy about three miles to the boarding house, and she bid him farewell, but he didn't watch to see if she entered the home. Then he drove off to a bar to meet a friend, arriving there around 9.30. Meanwhile, Peggy's roommates got home themselves around 9.30, but Peggy wasn't there. They waited for a time, for hours, and eventually went to bed. The house mother stayed up a bit, sipping tea, keeping vigil. Curfew was midnight, after all. It was a half hour past midnight, when police were arriving just a few houses away at that cinder block garage in the alley. 
Peggy still wore her white blouse buttoned to the top, a brown sweater with brass buttons, and a tan skirt. A small black bow was pinned to her curly brown hair. The back of her long red coat looked as if she had been dragged along the ground. The medical examiner found three bullet wounds on her face caused by a small caliber weapon. A fourth bullet went through the collar of her coat. There was also a jagged wound near her hairline. Detectives speculate it could have been a blow from the butt of a gun. Peggy's undergarments, she wore a girdle, underwear, and a garter, had been ripped or torn, and her slip was rolled up. But while semen was found on the back of her skirt, the autopsy determined she had not been raped. Hmm. Yeah. Meanwhile, back at the boarding house, the house mothers went to bed. When they woke up and Peggy still wasn't home, they looked about and noticed a pile of objects in the backyard. It was Peggy's school books, neatly stacked on the ground, and next to them, the department store shopping bag. They called police, who now learned where Peggy had been living. So if they were neatly stacked, it tells me that she put them down. She didn't just drop them in a being attacked. Yes, she came she so was, close to making it through the back right. door. But exactly as you said, the detectives, their theory was that Peggy had been dropped off, walked to the back of the house where she always entered, and was confronted by someone with a gun who probably ordered her to put those items down. And at the point of a gun, she was then probably ordered to walk down the alley where she was ultimately assaulted and killed. Now, police thoroughly vetted Gary Onko. He was the man who found the body and his roommate. They both passed polygraph tests. And naturally, they spent quite a bit of time with Ron Neggett, the classmate who had taken her home that night. They searched his car for clues and gave him both a polygraph and a paraffin test to see if he had recently fired a gun. What's a, the paraffin test is uh, to check for... Gun residue? Gunshot residue, okay. yeah. And they found none on him. He passed both those tests. Detectives explored Peggy's background in the case just in case it wasn't a random attack. They could find no motive. She didn't have any enemies. She never even had a serious boyfriend. A boy she had dated once in high school was questioned and cleared. He said Peggy was too religious for a romantic relationship. She was also too devoted to her studies. Police canvassed the neighborhood to see if anyone had seen or heard anything, and they learned something from the Logue family, who also lived off the alley. The family had been watching The Real McCoys. Had you ever even heard of that show? Yeah, I've heard of it. I've never seen it. Yeah, The Real McCoys. They'd been watching that till about 9 p.m. Then they dressed for bed before their boys uh, insisted on having some late-night sandwiches. So they went to the kitchen, were preparing sandwiches, when their dog began to growl. They let the pooch outside, and he began to bark. And that's when they heard four loud bangs. They dismissed it as either a car backfiring or firecrackers that local fraternity members often set off. The Logue son said he stepped out into the yard and saw two cars idling in the alley. Then suddenly, they gunned their engines and sped off. Now, I know what you're thinking, because I'm thinking it too. Yes, uh, you know, did they have anything to do with it? Yeah. Interestingly, 
The detectives, they were quick to disassociate those cars with Peggy's killer. Their theory was, you know, if the killer had access to a car, it didn't seem likely he would attack her in an open garage, in a residential area, when he could simply drive her to a more remote location. They believed the cars probably belonged to college students, maybe who were startled by the noise. A few days after Peggy's death, on September 25, the Columbus Dispatch ran a really unusual plea for the killer to turn himself in. Let me read it to you. We know you are frightened, and we know you need help. You've had nearly 100 hours of terror, such as only the hunted animal may know. But the hunted animal does not have your memories of a young girl vibrantly alive, then suddenly dead in a darkened alley. No matter how long you elude police, you will not escape yourself, waking or sleeping, for one moment. Mary's mother says she has no bitterness toward the man who killed her daughter. But this compassionate woman does beg you to turn yourself in so no other girl is harmed. If you do not surrender, the hours you've just passed through are only the initiation to a personal hell from which you'll never escape. If you are afraid to call the police, call the dispatch. Ask for the city editor. He will arrange for you to surrender in the presence of dispatch newsmen who will ensure that you are taken into proper custody without harm. If you feel you first want to secure an attorney, you may telephone the Columbus Bar Association. There's a lot here. I tells me that they seeked out a professional to write this, maybe a psychiatrist or something. That's a really good uh, suggestion. I think maybe they did. It would make sense for them to vet it and make sure that they were making the most out of those brief few words. Yeah, appealing to how he's feeling and stuff like that. Acting almost like they care about him. Right, right. I think you're right. Sadly, nobody took the newspaper up on its offer. By the end of that first week, 60 known sex offenders in the Columbus area had been questioned. Police also learned of another case that might have been connected to Peggy's. The night before she was killed, a woman on Alden Avenue, that was less than a mile from the scene of the crime, reported she was confronted by a man with a gun in front of her home. The man ordered her inside and began assaulting her when a roommate emerged to challenge the attacker, who fired two shots as he ran away. The Citizen Journal published a sketch of the man. He was white, young, with a small build, and police were inundated with hundreds of new leads. Ten detectives were assigned to follow up each and every phone call. The crime lab couldn't definitively say that the bullets recovered from Peggy's body and those fired in that other case belonged to the same gun, but they did say there were enough similar characteristics to suggest it was. More than a year later, in October of 1963, a .22 caliber pistol was found in a drain spout in the university district. While the test wasn't 100% conclusive, the crime lab said it was likely the gun had been used in both those crimes. That gun had an owner, and police traced it to Frederick John Vlascamp, an Ohio State student who lived a few blocks from Peggy's boarding house. When police showed up at his doorstep, 
He said the gun had been stolen from him before the murder. He hadn't reported it because he thought he'd simply lost it. He eventually took and passed a polygraph test and was cleared as a suspect. Peggy's case grew cold, but it was not forgotten. Within the homicide unit, even today, she's something of a poster child for cases in need of solving. And in 2000, Detective David Morris pulled her case out to take another look. He called an old detective that had been a first responder to the scene, and that's when he learned there had been a semen stain on the back of Peggy's skirt. Now, nobody had heard of DNA back in 1962, but they were smart enough to save that skirt, and so Morris submitted it to the FBI for testing, and lo and behold, they got a full genetic profile from the stain. Oh, nice. So with DNA in hand, Steve, who's the first suspect you're going to test it on? Well, definitely the person who owned the gun, but I'd also, the last person who seen her. Well, there you go. Those are good guesses. Morris went back and visited the guy who had owned that gun, the one that had been found in 63. He was still living in Southern Ohio, and he willingly gave a DNA sample. He had been cleared in 1963, and now he was cleared again. It wasn't him. But who? Police know the killer's DNA, but not his name. He hasn't shown up in CODIS, that's the database, that collects DNA profiles contributed by law enforcement around the country. Detective Morris eventually retired, and another detective picked up the file, Detective Dana Farbacher, and he shared with Columbus Monthly a glimpse of the thousands of interviews, polygraph tests, crime scene photos, everything neatly typewritten and organized chronologically with an index of names. Farbacher said it's quite common for evidence to have been lost or poorly preserved in a case that's more than 60 years old, but near everything in this case is still there and was handled well and properly. Farbacher is part of a five-person cold case unit. Since 1994, the cold case unit has solved 88 formerly unsolved homicides. But Columbus still has more than 800 open murder cases. Detectives clearly have to pick and choose which cases have the best chance of getting resolved. And Peggy's is among those that keep rising to the top. Random acts of violence are actually pretty rare. And that's one of the biggest challenges in this case. Most victims are killed by someone they know. Domestic disturbances, disputes, drug-related fights. Detective Farbacher told Columbus Monthly, Peggy was a true victim. This woman did absolutely nothing to put herself in a position to become a homicide victim, he said. And sadly, she became just that. Well, let's bring on board our armchair detective to talk this out. Well, tonight with us, we have Mark Murray. Mark is uh, speaking with us all the way from St. Louis, Missouri. Hi, Mark. Hello, how are you? I'm doing great. Hey, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. 
I live in St. Louis, Missouri. I previously spent about four and a half years in the town of Westerville, Ohio, which is about 20 to 30 minutes northeast of the location of, the, of this crime scene in Columbus, and uh, went to Westwood North High School. Are you familiar at all with the Ohio State campus area? Did you ever spend any time there? Uh, some, not a whole lot. Well, let me ask you if you ever heard of this case. I'm, I'm, it's an old one, and you weren't there for a long time, but had you ever heard of this one? I had not. Why don't you give me your overall take on this crime? I mean, is there anything about it that really stands out to you? The one thing that stands out to me, I guess, is that it, it doesn't appear they're ever going to find out who the uh, assailant was. The only thing that I think that might have changed that outcome would have been if they had done DNA testing earlier on the semen stain on her skirt. And if they had done that maybe before 2000 or so when they did it, um, maybe the assailant might still have been alive at the time or they might have taken a, a sample uh, from him at the time. Reading through the materials, I think the the conclusion I came up with is that it was probably some uh, person who was a sexual deviant, and this was a target of opportunity for him, and uh, he committed the crime, and he probably was not in the penal system at that point, but he probably committed additional crimes in the future, went to prison, and died before they did the DNA test. So it was not a surprise they didn't find anybody when they did the DNA test. Now, I wonder if this would be a good candidate for the familial DNA that they're doing now in which they simply try to find a close relative, narrow down who you are just based on where you were, whether you had the opportunity and the location and you fit the age and the description. And even if they can't quite get your DNA. I mean, sometimes they can find like a brother or somebody close enough to narrow it down. I'm, I'm just wondering if it might be a candidate for that new technology they're using. That would be a possibility. You mentioned uh, you thinking this guy was just a sexual deviant. I'm wondering, do you think that he scoped out that location, maybe like lived around there and knew there was a, a house full of girls there who used the back door? I think that's probably very likely, and given the location of these boarding houses and that they're essentially right across from the Ohio State campus, this is probably an area that he had picked out to, to settle in on for quite some time. The other thing that kind of struck me about this case was, from what I could read, if the newspapers got it right, you know, the girls who are friends of her said, well, they just, you know, when she didn't show up by about midnight, they all went to bed. And that the house mothers kind of stayed up for a while and kept, you know, vigil. But eventually they went to bed. And then when everybody woke up in the morning, they decided to start looking for her. And part of me is like, if you know this is out of character, why don't you start immediately? I hear that every once in a while when I, I hear a case and they're like, well, we went to bed and when we woke up, they still weren't home. And I'm thinking, if I've got somebody that I totally don't expect to be missing at this time, I'm not going to bed. I would agree with that. I think that if they lived, uh, her two girlfriends who were in school with her and lived in the same boarding house, knew each other's comings and goings, they would have been nervous and uh, suspicious when she didn't show up by the time they got home from taking the bus. 
I'm wondering if back then, for a long time, the police in general had a criteria. You know, you had if you were an adult, you had to be missing for at least 24 hours. And maybe people just resisted calling the police early because they thought that they had to wait that 24 hours. But it just really struck me when I read where they all like specifically said they went to bed. And I'm like, boy, if I if I don't show up at home. I hope my family's not going to bed and waiting 24 hours. Give her a day or two to show up. She'll probably show up. She'll show up, and then we'll find out what it was all about. So it looks like who killed Peggy also attacked another woman. What are the chances that he stopped then? I mean, do you think this guy just probably went on and has a long history of, of these types of crimes that were attached to him and just never got solved? I'm not an expert in the field, but I would have to think that this was not his first nor his last attack on a, on a on a girl or a lady because I think if this person has these kind of urges or desires, it's just not going to stop. It's just going to keep going, and that's why I think that ultimately he either probably was caught for a different crime before DNA testing became uh, something people did and went to the penal system and either died in jail or died in prison or died after being released. Yeah, I wonder if, I mean, there's got to be a system where people, you know, authorities are trying to tie cases together. I got to hope that whoever was looking at this was also looking at other cases in that area and trying to see who he might have been responsible for. Because once you have all of these cases together, Maybe there's a clue there that will will come out and solve them all. Right, and I saw that the Columbus uh, police officer said that they interviewed, um, I can't remember if the number was 25 or 250 of the uh, sexual offender suspects that they knew of in the Columbus area right after this occurred and eliminated them as candidates for the assailant, but you wonder how, uh, if they took that a little bit further and did a broader search uh, throughout the state, might that have resulted in a different uh, outcome? And part of that is just the times and, you know, 1962 technology and 1962 police work is a world away from where we are today in terms of communications and databases. and. They probably did everything they thought they could back then, but looking back at, at from almost 60 years later, uh, we can surely pick apart what they did. Uh, not fair to them at the time, obviously, but we're just so used to seeing so much technology employed and so many databases out there to check that uh, we can't really grasp that you know what they did was standard operating procedure for 1962, and they did what they were supposed to do. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it was a world away from what we would, you know, do and be familiar with today. I'm also kind of curious about the gun. It it looks like the killer disposed of the gun. And I'm wondering why. I mean, if you're going to continue doing this kind of thing, were they getting close to him? I mean, did he just feel that heat and need to distance himself from that weapon? That's a good question. I think they found it in a drain pipe. He may have thought that he hit it pretty well. I think it took about a year for them to locate that. Uh, I think it's probably likely, going back to our earlier discussion, that he is familiar with the area since I think he stole that from a 
another Ohio State student who was residing probably, you know, in that same vicinity. And so this would suggest that he was familiar with that area along with that assault on the uh, other lady a few nights before. I think, you know, he probably thought that this is a way to get rid of the evidence and was somewhat successful with that. I mean, it didn't turn up for about a year. That's a good point. Since it was a year later, he might have just gotten rid of that gun right away. It might not have been a case of him, like, hanging on to it for a year. He might have just done these two crimes, ditched it, figured he'd get another weapon if he was going to do it again, and it just took that long to find it. It reminded me of the scene from The Godfather 2 where young Vito Corleone is disposing of the pistol and various rooftop pipes because he's going from rooftop oh, to rooftop. Oh, that's right. He was taking it apart, right? And throwing right. the pieces of it off. Oh, that's right. I forgot all about that scene. Okay, the guy who actually owned the gun. So the police go to him, and he says, oh, you know what? It was stolen. What was your first thought when he said that? It was interesting that that was the first thing that he said. Uh, I don't doubt that he was telling the truth. And I think the police were, again, they followed up with as much as they could at the time. I was, uh, I did see later on in the Columbus Monthly article that they had cleared him when they did get the DNA testing done, that he was not a match for that either. So it looks like he was telling the truth. It does. But I got to tell you, when it, when he said, yeah, you know, it was stolen, my first thought was, okay, you know, of course you would say that. And it wasn't until later I got further into my research that I realized that they were able to go back and test his DNA. And I was like, son of a gun, it wasn't him. But until they did that, I thought that guy probably had to live with a lot of suspicion. Because right. all they're doing is taking his word for it. I feel bad for him, but I also feel bad for uh, the person who gave Peggy the ride home from the business school that evening. Um, Yes. I think he thought he did everything right in terms of safety, dropping her off by a street light. Um, and I, he may not have known that she used the back door to the house to get in. Would have been walking back towards presumably an unlit dark alley. Right. And if they said she always used the back door. The girls always used the back door. So even if he knew, he, his car's not going to drive back there. I mean, he probably dropped her off at the front and knew he wasn't going to be able to watch her step in. And yeah, I felt bad for him too because I thought, boy, he was probably also somewhat under suspicion. Although he drove right away to another bar, so he had a really good alibi, and people knew, right. you know, where he was at that time. But I would feel, yeah, I would feel horrible. I mean, even today, if I drop somebody off at their house, I usually sit there and wait till I see that they've gotten in, just by habit. And if I didn't, and that person ended up you know, dead, yeah, I would, I'd probably never get over that. Right. Yeah, I, I would feel the same way about that because I think I do the same thing typically, even waiting for adults to get in the door. So I, I don't think, unfortunately, they're going to figure out who the culprit was here. Um, again, my, my hunch would be that whoever did this didn't stop doing horrible acts like this and ultimately probably was caught someplace, could have been Ohio, could have been a different state, and, <clears throat> pardon me, and probably uh, passed on before the DNA ever got tested and maybe passed on before they started taking right. samples from prisoners. Oh, that, would, that would just be tragic, although 
I would like to think that, uh, you know, this guy did get caught doing something and paid a price and didn't just, I don't want to think of him living some happy, content life somewhere because he got away with it all. Right. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. All right. Thank you very much. Take care. That's it for tonight, campers. Stop by our website, ohiomysteries.com, for photos, links, news clippings, and more on this and every Ohio Mystery episode. You know what else you'll find on the website? What? Links to every musical artist we featured on our episodes. So let's add another one tonight, Paula. You bet. Tonight's featured Ohio musical artist is Hebdo, a Columbus group comprised of Joe Hebdo on lead vocal and rhythm guitar, Mike James on lead guitar, Mark Subble on bass, Luke Holmes on keys, and Maxwell Button on drums. They call their sound Adventure Folk. Be sure to follow the boys on Instagram and Facebook, where you can keep up with their recent activities. I'm looking right now, and I see Joe Hebdo talking about how he just released an acoustic cover of the Temptations classic, My Girl. I love that song. You can find Hebdo's version on Spotify and, well, all over the internet. Well, how about a listen to that song we sampled at the start of our podcast? Here's the full version of Go Back Home by Hebdo. Give it a listen, and we'll see you back here next week for another Ohio Mystery.
soon Don't you look me up Don't you fill my cup Run my vacuum No profit here Just a pilot of my own Seabound ship No puzzle piece with a shape like me I quit The verdict's in You know I just don't fit We have this superb podcast called We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by Billy Joel. It is the most original, fascinating, and random way to learn the story of the 20th century. Oh, pretty darned random. And we are joined by some pretty incredible guests. I only wrote stuff that I wanted to hear. If it turned out to be a hit, it was pure dumb luck. With me, Katie Puckrick. And me, Tom Fordyce. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel.